Hey, it's Pastor Mike. I want to give some basic instructions and some help uh, in working your partner through the first chapter of the partners program. First of all, and sometimes we make this assumption and we shouldn't, we need to see and check and ask and, and, and make sure that our partner has done all the questions. Uh, if they get in the pattern early of maybe only doing half of it, and then you're halfway through your partner's um, meeting and you realize they didn't finish it all, this isn't going to work. So ask them up front, make sure they've filled in all the questions and that they have finished the, uh, the homework. We'll just call it homework, answering all the questions in chapter one. Secondly, we need to be able to uh, ask them right up front, was there any part of this you didn't understand? Uh, any questions that were just out in left field that didn't make sense to you? Now, it doesn't mean you're gonna address them right at that time, but it's a good question to ask up front. Check to see they've done their homework, ask them if there are any part of, you know, any part of what you went over that you didn't understand. And a lot of times that's just for me to get, um, you know, a few notes down to say, all right, when we get to that section, I'll try to help talk them through it. Or uh, maybe it's part that is, you know, poorly worded and we can report that to the partner's coordinator or whatever. But I want to be able to, uh, to, to troubleshoot that, uh, at least notate the trouble up front and then troubleshoot it later. Thirdly, uh, the whole chapter is designed to help us uh, reevaluate our Christianity, our relationship with God, as the title says. And for a lot of people, that's never happened. It certainly isn't the culture of modern Christianity to be questioning uh, someone's Christianity and their relationship with God. But maybe it's good right up front uh, just to be able to say, hey, it's good for everyone uh, to reassess and reevaluate the uh, genuineness of their, uh, their faith in Christ. I mean, if you really look throughout the whole New Testament, you'll find this shows up often. I mean, so many passages about, uh, you know, uh, looking for fruit, uh, John 15, making sure we're abiding and that we're seeing answers to prayer and things through our lives that are evidence of God's work. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 8, that we test ourselves to see if we're of the faith. Even nuances in the pastoral epistles, which is interesting, where Paul is uh, saying things to Timothy uh, that will, uh, the exhortations give him a, a sense, Timothy a sense, that his Christianity is, is bonafide, it's real. So if a pastor should reevaluate his Christianity from time to time. Certainly, we shouldn't make any apologies uh, for having our partner, even if they've been a Christian for many, many years, uh, to go through this material and to be open and honest about evaluating their, uh, their relationship with God. Is it real? Is it bona fide? Is it genuine? And I've often said this, but um, Satan's number one strategy is to get people to question I'm sorry, to, to obscure the, uh, the message of the gospel. Uh, so if he can get us to think we're saved when we're not, I mean, that's, that's a big win uh, for the enemy. So uh, Hebrews is a great example. I just think of many here as I uh, talk to you about this. Uh, Hebrews over and over again stops the churchgoers and says, listen, are you genuinely converted? Do you see bona fide faith? Are you really uh, converted? Have you really entered into this rest as Hebrews says. There's so much of this in the Bible. So we just want to kind of justify what this chapter is doing, which I find to be unique among, um, you know, a lot of the material that's out there. A lot of people, if you say you're saved, hey, we're not going to question that. That's between you and God. Well, Partners is going to get right to the issue, and uh, we need to get um, comfortable with that culture of saying, hey, it's good for us to test ourselves and see if we're of the faith. The beginning of the chapter uh, can be... Um, a little less uh, confrontational, if we think it's confrontational to 
question someone's uh, relationship with God because we want to focus really on the information. The response to the gospel is based on the information of the gospel. So as you know, having worked through the chapter yourself, uh, we're going to focus on the information. I mean, what is it that we need to know? And, uh, and that's a good place to start, even at the uh, very first introduction to the chapter. In other words, I always like to start my partner's uh, appointments with some kind of exercise. And uh, unless they're a brand new Christian, even if they are, I often start chapter one with an assignment, a little exercise at the beginning, asking my partner uh, to share the gospel with me. And sometimes they'll put it in a setting that makes it urgent. You know, I'm, a, I'm on a deathbed. I've called you over. I hear you go to church. You're a Christian. Tell me how I get right with God because I've only got, you know, three or four minutes left on this earth. How do, how do you get saved? And, uh, and that helps to expose what someone believes the information is and what the call or the imperative of the gospel is. And we want to analyze that and look at that, not for the sake of embarrassment or, or you know, calling them out and making them feel uh, bad about whatever deficiencies there may be, but at least being able to uh, say, hey, we need to examine the information that you believe, that you understand to be the, the information that is contained in the gospel. And that's perhaps a good exercise in one way or another. Get them to focus on the informational part of the gospel so we can have a, an analysis of that. Number five, it's important that we push to define all the cliches. Uh, one of the things that happens in uh, Christianity today is people come up with great, you know, truncated cliches uh, in which they transmit the information of the gospel and they call people to respond to the gospel. And uh, you've heard me many times, if you heard me preach at all, you know, my disdain for the kind of uh, little truncated phrases that are not in the scripture that we use to tell people to get right with God, uh, you know, asking Jesus into our heart or walking an aisle or whatever it might be. Uh, we equate that with the right response to the gospel. But what we want to do is make sure that we push every cliche uh, that they may use, particularly in the, the opening exercise, if you choose to use that, uh, to define it. What do you mean by that? And if you asked, uh, if you said that you need to ask Jesus in your heart, what does that mean? What do you, what is the, what is, what is in your mind when you share that phrase? What is the, uh, uh, the meaning that you're thinking of behind those kinds of phrases? So we want to make sure we push through every uh, cliche and sometimes even biblical terminology uh, can turn into a cliche. We've got to understand what the biblical words mean, uh, not to mention any cliche that we might come up with uh, that has been popular. We've got to define those. So uh, make sure that throughout chapter one, particularly as we focus on the information itself, that we just don't let any kind of, uh, you know, even if it's long-standing, uh, long-standing cliche in the church, we don't let it sit there without pushing to definition. What, what are we talking about? We need to define our terms. We need to define uh, all the parts of the gospel that are described. Number six, we need to uh, be comfortable uh, over-explaining as opposed to risking under-explaining. I, I know a lot of people struggle because it's almost, particularly the first uh, meeting that we have with someone, it seems insulting to keep pushing for uh, definitions and calling cliches into question, but it'd be much better. Think of this long-term from an eternal perspective to spend uh, our effort and time in chapter one over-explaining the gospel in terms of defining every detail, making sure we agree on all of the pertinent facts, then to under-explain it and just assume that our partner 
knows what all these things mean. So, you know, that if, you know, if you're finding an equilibrium in your first partner session, just make sure that you're willing to move further in explaining things than you think you may have to. I mean, obviously, if we have an experienced seasoned Christian, we won't have to spend as much time, but be willing to go further than you think you need to go in explaining what repentance means or faith means or what the Bible says about the death of Christ and what it means. Uh, better to over-explain than simply assume that we have the same definitions of all these things. Number seven, um, there's often a uh, need for us to challenge some original study uh, of the gospel within the scriptures. And what I mean by that is when I go through partners with someone, take someone through chapter one, there's often a, um, a pushback, you know, that they don't like the questioning of terms or phrases or cliches, or they want to, uh, you know, kind of just remove the partner from kind of probing in the area of someone's uh, presumed knowledge of the gospel. And, and so it doesn't need to happen every time you may have a very teachable partner. But if you find a little pushback, uh, it is a great study, even if you have to skip a week of your meeting, to send someone back to the New Testament itself and to examine the data and what the Bible actually says using biblical terms, biblical settings of the, of the proclamation of the gospel. What does the Bible say about how to get right with God? It is amazing how many people have built their theology about how to become a Christian based on tracts or sermons they've heard or slogans or phrases from hymns or Christian songs. But to send them back and say, hey, this would be a good assignment. Even if you just truncated the assignment to say from Acts chapter 2 through the New Testament epistles, just look for every presentation of the gospel and then outline the data there and then compile it all, synthesize it and put it into one package. What is the gospel in the words and in the settings of the New Testament? What does it say? What do we derive if we don't use sermons? We don't use people's evangelistic tools or phrases or prayers that we recite. We just look at the biblical data. That is so refreshing. And I think many of you, many of you have heard me say that was revolutionary for me. I was challenged to do that and had uh, never done it for myself. Grown up in church, thought for sure I knew what the gospel was. Had someone say, listen, can, can you just compile the information for yourself from the New Testament, life-changing for me, so clarifying for me, uh, and, and it can be life-changing for your partner. So if you get that pushback or you feel it's needed or it would be really helpful, uh, that is a great assignment that you should keep in your back pocket, pull it out. And, and I, well, I think one of the sidebar discussions may recommend that in the deeper study, but it's a great thing for you guys to, uh, to assign and to work through because there's no arguing with the biblical data itself. And that is uh, um, a great clarifying exercise. Number eight, we need to stress the biblical appeal and, uh, and not the modern appeal to the gospel. Uh, and, and this tries to find its way into the uh, partner's data, but I think we can bring our own experiences and our own um, knowledge of gospel presentations into our discussion and allow people to see that the gospel, uh, even if we took all the pieces of the gospel and laid them out and agreed to share the pieces of the gospel, uh, the biblical data of the gospel, we find a lot of people uh, choosing to arrange things in a certain way that the appeal of the gospel becomes uh, unbiblical. 
In other words, and, and just to give you an example, the appeal today is most often uh, come to Christ because God loves you and you will be fulfilled. And if you look through the biblical data, uh, you may find that there are aspects, certainly in the gospel, that talk about God's love and talk about the fact that there is some fulfillment that comes in our current Christian life and a ton that comes uh, in the next life. But to take those and put those up front and to make those the appeal of the gospel is really a perversion of what the gospel gospel is as we see it presented in scripture. The appeal of the gospel and the reason we start with uh, topics like creation and authority, uh, the appeal of the gospel is one of urgency. It has to do with God's authority. It speaks of our dire need because of sin. And those are the kinds of issues that uh, we find driving the gospel presentation, say in the book of Acts. The appeal is not, hey, are you lonely? Are you down? Are you depressed? Uh, do you want to be loved? Do you need real love? Do you want to experience real love? Hey, come to Jesus. It's not what we see. We see the urgency of the gospel and the appeal of the gospel presented from the uh, biblical perspective of uh, urgency. I have a problem, a sin problem. God is holy. He is my creator. I'm in trouble with God. I need to repent. I need to cling to the solution to my sin. That's the biblical appeal versus the modern appeal. And that at some point in chapter one needs to be described, explained, discussed, because those are the kinds of things that some people can still say, hey, we're using biblical terms. We're talking about biblical things, but we've really repackaged the gospel as some kind of self-help appeal instead of the right response to the gospel that is based on the appeal of my desperate need for salvation uh, because of my sin before a holy authoritative God. Super important distinction to make. Number nine, we need to work in partners and the data in the chapter itself I trust will help you do this to uh, help uh, kind of write the, um, the neglect of the biblical focus on repentance. In other words, if you look at the response to the gospel, we clearly have a two-part, uh, uh, two components of one response to the gospel, one described with the word repentance and one described with the word faith. And the modern church has focused on faith, and they've focused their attention on that uh, exclusively and to the exclusion of the concept and the discussion of repentance. Uh, and I know in our chapter, I've tried to add a lot of data on repentance and more data from the Bible on repentance than I do on faith. That's because the pendulum has swung so far in one direction that we need to help bring the pendulum back so that we talk about both repentance and faith. So we want to, uh, to solve that. If there's been so much neglect on repentance, and if some people can say, hey, I've never even heard about repentance. Some people have said that. I, I, you, you've talked through chapter one. I didn't even have any discussion, any presentation, any appeal to me uh, in the person that, that led me to Christ, uh, supposedly, uh, to talk about or understand my need to repent. Uh, so we, we need to put a lot of focus on that in chapter one uh, because we need to, to find some equilibrium. We need to find the balance that there is both uh, a component of repentance and a component of faith that are two distinct but inseparable components of one response to the gospel. And so there's a lot of verses in chapter one that focus on that. And for a lot of people, you'll see their eyes get big. This is, uh, is almost like brand new information for them because uh, they've had very little discussion about it because in our day, we don't like to talk it seems the modern church too much about the concept of repentance, turning from sin to God to serve the living God, as Paul said to the Thessalonians. So we were willing to put a lot more focus in chapter one on the data on 
uh, repentance, assuming that most people have heard a lot of discussion and looked up a lot of verses already in their Christian life on faith, though there's plenty in chapter 1 on faith. Number 10, we need to make sure that the equations are understood. Uh, we cannot miss this. I mean, they're a visible and obvious part of the chapter, but those have to be mastered. We have to be able to explain them in our own words. So make sure that you're able to explain those equations, that some people think that the gospel plus the response plus good works equals salvation, which we call those groups cult groups because you've got to earn your way into salvation. Uh, but the church, unfortunately, have swung the pendulum away from works and have said, hey, I don't want to talk about works when it comes to salvation. So they say the gospel plus the response equals salvation. Don't talk to me about works. But of course, the biblical equation is that the gospel plus the response equals salvation plus good works. Those follow. Those are a part of it. You don't have salvation unless you see that there is a changed life because the gospel changes our lives. And uh, if you live for 10 minutes... Uh, after you become a Christian, you got some something in that 10-minute period of time that's going to reflect fruit. If you live for 10 years, you're going to have 10 years of fruit. Not that we're sinless. have to say that all the time. We're not talking about perfectionism. We're not talking about a perfect Christian life. But we are talking about a changed life because the gospel transforms us. If any man's in Christ, 2 Corinthians uh, says, oh, we're new creations. Old things pass away. New things come. That's our theme verse. And it is what happens with real Christianity. And so we have to be able to describe those equations. And you need to talk about them and add some, you know, maybe some real life examples to them. Equation number one, a lot of people say, and I've heard it said, and people teach it in a lot of groups. Got to do good works to get saved. That's the scales on Judgment Day. Other people say, well, you know what? Not about good works. You can trust in Christ. And even if your life continues on and there's no change and no good works, hey, that's fine. I'm sure you're still saved and your faith is fine. Of course, we need to focus on the biblical model, which is faith without works is dead. It's not saving faith. Uh, James made that clear. Even the demons have a kind of faith. It's not saving faith. Saving faith is a kind of faith that transforms our lives. So make sure you understand those equations and you can explain those equations clearly. Number 11, we need to clearly define, and this isn't as, is not as easy as it sounds, uh, biblical fruit. We use that word. It's an analogy, obviously, but there needs to be evidence of salvation. We have a very small section as they write out their testimony, a little paragraph that they're supposed to fill in that talks about evidence or fruit of their Christian life. So that's going to take some discernment uh, to make sure that we look at those and diplomatically and nicely distinguish between things that are just, you know, exterior conformity to a Christian group and real fruit. And I often like to say there's a difference between uh, working on Christianity from the outside in uh, and the kind of Christianity that works itself out from the inside out. Uh, you know, if someone writes down, well, part of my fruit is church attendance. Um, they, you know, a lot of non-Christians can go to church. But fruit could be, I have a real desire and an insatiable desire to fellowship with God's people and to learn from his word. That is fruit. Uh, so we don't just want to uh, let the phrase church attendance, for instance, be adequate as a statement of fruit. We want to talk a little bit deeper than that and even help our partner uh, maybe even redefine some of the things on their list to make sure we're talking about uh, the kind of work of the spirit from the inside of our lives that is an evidence of salvation that can't be faked. It's not 
not something that you just conform to, uh, to fit in with the group, but something God is doing from the inside of our lives. Because if transformation is what God says takes place, we should be able to see that working itself out uh, in our Christian life. And often it's good to uh, assign the, uh, what we call a fruit list sometimes. Have them spend all week. If that's a weak part of their testimony, hey, let's keep track of it. Uh, Paul said in the book of Acts that we ought to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist said the same thing. And to do that, to prove our repentance by our deeds, uh, we want to be able to help people be able to point to things in their lives that are evidence of that. So make sure that what you uh, uh, do is, is distinguish between conformity externally to internal transformation and do the best we can to itemize those and phrase those in ways that reflect real bona fide biblical fruit. And uh, a week's long assignment can be helpful. I know there's a lot to do in partners. They got to work on chapter two questions. They got to memorize the verse and all that, but we can help them by um, being able to, without a doubt in their own minds, point to things in their lives that are evidence of real genuine faith in Christ. Number 12, uh, you should not be afraid uh, to extend the uh, focus on chapter one for as many weeks as you need. I know in the zero meeting uh, explanation and training, I said, hey, try to do this in less than 14 weeks. But uh, this is so important. This is the important issue of all of eternity. Are you right with God that if someone is not sure or if in your discussion with the person in partners, you don't think they're sure or there's confusion, say, hey, let's go over it again or let's do half of it this week or let's go deeper on the concepts of fruit or repentance or faith. But if you spent 20 weeks on chapter one. But at the end of 20 weeks, there was certainty and confidence in your partner that they are right with God. That would be 20 weeks well spent. So don't worry. Some of you are just worried about maybe checking the box, getting through it, and we got to stay on the schedule. Schedule doesn't matter at this point. What matters is that we really are able to check the box on uh, does this person have a bona fide relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, that's the difference between heaven and hell. So we can't let that slide. You may on another chapter say, well, I'm not sure, uh, you know, that their prayer list is quite what it should be, but we're gonna, we, we've got some improvement there. We'll go on to the next one. Those decisions may make sense, but in chapter one, it doesn't make any sense to ignore any kind of doubt, confusion, or uncertainty about whether or not someone is actually a Christian. These are just some of the things that we need to think about as we work through chapter one. And uh, if you highlight those in your own preparation, I trust it will help to make chapter one a really effective uh, partners meeting. It's the most important one in all 10 chapters. So make sure you prayerfully go after it and see what God does as a result of it.